0: Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 81 on a proposal for an independent fiscal policy body. This episode considers a proposal advanced in the Financial Times recently by Dr. Nicholas Gruen, CEO of Lateral Economics. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Nicholas Gruen, CEO of Lateral Economics and visiting professor at King's College London. Welcome back onto the program. Hi, Gene. Nicholas, it's uh, good to be chatting with you again on the show. Now, you've recently had an opinion piece published in the Financial Times, which is arguably the leading financial newspaper in the world, published out of London, and the article is titled, Fiscal Policy Should Be Freed of Political Tinkering. The pandemic response has shown again that, as with monetary policy, a trusted, independent body is needed. Could we begin with you explaining what do you see as the problem with the current way that fiscal
1: policy is developed? Sure. Um, maybe we should, uh, at some stage during this uh, podcast, so perhaps this is as good a time as any, we should distinguish between what I call the stance of fiscal policy and let's call it the details of fiscal policy. Um the details of fiscal policy who gets taxed what uh, how much and what that money is spent on can be regarded as the building blocks of modern democracy so i regard that as a fundamentally political question and if we imagine that it can be solved as some kind of independent technocratic exercise then we are firstly kidding ourselves and secondly probably making ourselves servant a servant to the powerful. <laughs> uh, but then, if you think about monetary policy, essentially we've got this hybrid system where fiscal policy is determined democratically, and monetary policy is determined by a an in uh, one hopes independent and expert elite. And so around the world, central banks uh, in Australia, the Reserve Bank of Australia in England, the Bank of England in the United States, the Fed and, uh, the, and so on. Uh, essentially, what happens is um, that monetary policy, which let's just say for the sake of this conversation, is where the, uh, the government sets the, sh- the short term interest rate that is determined by an independent body. Uh, now, if you look at if you look at the history of, ec- of macroeconomic policy over the last, say, thirty years, one of the things that is, that is a reasonable stylized fact from that is that although mistakes have been made running monetary policy, monetary policy has been run a lot better than fiscal policy, and in fact, we're now in a situation where we have where we have discovered the hazards of relying too heavily on monetary policy to stimulate a pretty sluggish economy. Um, And you can definitely argue that one of the reasons we found ourselves doing that is that fiscal policy, that our democratic politicians would not manage fiscal policy responsibly for counter-cyclical purposes. That is, they wouldn't adjust their ambitions for the budget deficit or surplus principally to to help stabilise the economy. They had all kinds of political agendas. Uh, And so here we are in a situation where we've maxed out on monetary policy, which is independent, partly because it's independent, and fiscal policy is still... Of the plaything of political positioning uh, and so on and so forth. And so I want to find a way to think about fiscal policy and say, accepting the necessarily political nature of fiscal policy, how could we build something to fiscal policy, which is a bit like monetary policy? And what I've done what I've said there is that the the budget, stance, the, the fiscal stance or the budget deficit or surplus is a different thing to all the details of how revenue is raised and outlays are spent and is in fact quite analogous to setting interest rates. So that's the case that I've made in that column. Okay. So
0: in your column, so this was a column published on the 16th of March, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. You mention the Cameron government in the UK, you give yeah. that as an example of a government where the fiscal policy at the time may have been uh, not optimal. Would you be able to yeah. explain what your concerns with the Cameron government's fiscal yeah. policy was?
1: Yeah. Well, I think I think most economists would have thought that after the depression, after the triumph of Keynesian economics, and even though Keynes was put back in his box when he became, or a vulgarised version of him, became dysfunctional in the 70s. Nevertheless, when we hit a really big enough road bump, uh, economists instinctively turned to fiscal policy to make sure we didn't go into another Great Depression. And so in the 2008-9 financial crash around the world, it was very impressive that uh, advisors to governments showed enough intellectual nimbleness, and often they don't, uh, they showed enough intellectual nimbleness to say, hang on, this is different. We've been on a long-term kind of campaign to try and repair some of the damage that vulgar Keynesianism did, but this is a time for government spending. Now, what happened in the UK was that as that process took place, the government changed hands from a Labor government to a conservative government. And the political narrative of swinging the budget towards austerity, saying, oh, my God, look at the size of the deficit, we can't live with that, and then blaming... One's predecessors, the Labour Party, and saying that the Labour Party is profligate with money and all that stuff was basically just too politically tempting for David Cameron, and I say the new Prime Minister. And I say that I'm not very moralistic about politics, I've been up close to it, mm-hmm. and you have to do these things. Uh, just as John Paul Keating, the Australian Labour Prime Minister, managed to take down his opponent by saying what a terrible thing. a a value-added tax would be having toured the country seven years before saying it was (laughs) fundamental to repairing Australia's economy. So we have to be aware that those things are going on. And and if you look, for instance, at at the situation of the Rudd Labor government in Australia, which was at about the same time, they took the advice essentially that their bureaucrats gave them, and you might have been one of those bureaucrats, Gene, or certainly in the organisation that Mm. gave them that advice. They essentially took that advice, and what happened? Well, their conservative uh, opponents, which in Australia are called the Liberal Party, um, it was too easy for them to say, oh, well, Labor governments are just profligate with money, they're just throwing, the, the expression was, throwing money around like a drunken sailor, and that and that um that uh, that meme uh, that that uh, that line uh, stuck, and it sort of scared the labour party, the Australian Labor Party into promising when they would deliver a surplus, and all kinds of all kinds of nonsense when you can't promise. if you If you're really engaging in proper counter-cyclical fiscal policy, of course you can't say when you're going to hit surplus. Uh, and surpluses aren't better than deficits. They're diff- they're 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 appropriate at different parts of the cycle and so on. So, the way I look at it, the politics and if you like the sort of psychodynamics of left and right, and by that I mean, the fact that the left, their strength in campaigning is all about being mum and caring and education and health, and the this is all at the at the kind of deep psychological level. Yeah. And can and, and those on the right their strength in campaigning is that you know a lot of them come from business and they've got more money and they represent people with more money and they're really better with money. Well if you look at the empirical the empirical facts at least in this country that I don't think that's true and it's, nor was it really true in the UK but it's a it's a surefire winner uh, to get out there with the with into the media and say these kinds of things. So so that's the problem. Either uh, and and as you'll see, a lot of people who argue for independent fiscal policy or for these kinds of disciplines like for instance the balanced budget m- amendment particularly in the United States, they're arguing it from a position that deficits that are too large are kind of inherently bad. I'm arguing it from a different position which is that the cycle is inherently um, unpredictable and sometimes you're gonna want to run larger surpluses than governments will want to run and at other times you'll actually want r- larger deficits than governments will feel comfortable running uh, so that's the that's the idea of uh, that's the idea behind trying to... Stiffen the spine of governments with more independent ad- advice or control of this thing, of, of something which can affect the fiscal stance without, with, while having minimal effect on who gets taxed how much and w- what outlays are spent on. Yes.
0: Okay. Uh, yes. Thanks for reminding me of the Rudd government's uh, stimulus. So, <laughs> the way I've described it in the past is, uh, I mean, I was in the engine room at the time. So, yeah. uh, ra- whereas people like Ken Henry and, uh, well, I guess Andrew Charlton in Rudd's office, they were in the yeah. on the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but I had right. had the occasional trip up to the bridge. Uh, but yes, yeah. we had to find the mo- make sure the money was was there. The borrowing got done on time. It Was a fascinating. Yeah, 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 Extremely fascinating yeah. experience.
1: Uh, I, I remember talking to Andrew Charlton, I think it was in about November 2008, and I said, and, and at this stage, Andrew was saying to me, well, of course, we can't go into deficit. We can't have a stimulus that with our limit for how much we can spend on the stimulus is how much the surplus is. And I just said, that's ridiculous. I mean, you need to have us. you need to have a, a, a you need to spend well into deficit given what's happened. And sure enough, once the advice from Treasury strengthened that view and they thought about it a bit more, um, uh, uh, that that's what we did. Um, yeah. And we did the right thing and the government got into pretty bad political trouble for doing the right thing, just as the, uh, uh, you know, uh, on the other side of the world, uh, David Cameron, the new conservative prime minister, did the wrong thing and got a lot of credit for it. Mm-hmm. That Go figure,
0: mm-hmm. you know. I, yes. Uh, we'll have to come back to that issue of uh, whether there's any correlation between political parties, the yeah. the actual uh, ide- ideological stance and, and budget outcomes. I think generally you're you're probably right there. I mean, like we've had examples in Australia, we've had, We've had good governments on both sides of politics, mm. and we've had bad governments on yeah. on, on both yeah. sides when it comes to yeah. fiscal management. And we've had
1: a bad media all the way through, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I, except for us, of course. Jim.
0: Yes, yes, of course. So and
1: nibbling, nibbling at the edge. Ah, of- uh,
0: yes, yes. So I want to ask about, like, you, you compare it with. Monetary policy. So we've got an independent central bank because we made the we realized that you need an independent central bank to have credibility that the central bank will keep inflation low. It will run monetary policy in such a way that it it will keep inflation low, anchor those inflationary expectations, as they say. Now the governments have given central banks mandates for how they should run monetary policy or, or what they yeah. should target. And, and with the Federal Reserve, I think it's a dual mandate. They have to target inflation around 2% and also be mindful of what happens with employment. In Australia, we've got a 2 to 3% inflation target. I think it's – is it over the – I'm trying to trying to remember the exact way we phrase it, but they also have to be mindful of what it means for economic growth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how would you specify the uh, the uh, mandate from a government if it was to give a mandate to an independent advisory body and we'll chat later about yeah. what that body might look like how yeah. would the government say okay we want your best advice on what the deficit or, or surplus if uh, the economy is running really hot what should that be uh, what what object uh, that's a bit technical yeah. but what uh, what factors should they be what taking into account?
1: I think what you're asking is what policy direction should the government give the give the independent body? Yes, or something like that. And I mean, again, this would take more than you have time to discuss. But I'll give you my kind of my preferred answer, which is very, very niche. Very, uh, not many economists will say this, but we can. We do, but but we can also I can also give you a an, an answer that would. Um, hopefully keep more economists happy. I think that it it makes us, there's a lot of what I call accountability theatre in uh, all this, and it makes us feel good to say we're imposing the policy requirements on the bank and then on a central bank, and then it has independence in delivering those. But it's not at all clear to me that that makes a lot of sense uh, the the um the consensus the professional consensus moves around uh these ban- the central banks tend to follow the professional consensus whatever um so a i'm not sure it's a good thing to impose the target but if you do they ignore it so the ECb the european central bank ignores the inflation um the inflation mandate when it wants to do something else, when when the pardon my, it's not racism, it's culturalism or whatever, but when the Germans keep insisting on uh, on on sort of uh, very old-fashioned and basically in my opinion, wrong principles of fiscal policy, in Australia, we have uh, for the entire term of the current governor, he's not met his his inflation target. Uh, he kind of wants to, but 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 there isn't. So, so we sort of set up the theatre as if this is strict accountability, and it's actually not. It's it's giving a group of expert people the authority to do the best they can. They know what we care about, which is inflation and unemployment together. We not they know that we want them to get the best optimum they can get. And us pretending that it makes a lot of sense for us to say more about that and specify that further, or that if we do, it will actually, uh, it will, it will actually get through to the system. Um, uh, the 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 facts suggest otherwise. So that's my rather, you know, it's it's not radical in terms of its upshot, but it's a bit radical in terms of the way people have discussed this. Um, If you want me to specify what kind of fiscal, what kind of long term fiscal policy agenda uh, we should have, there are various fiscal rules that they proved up in the United Kingdom that the Blair government committed itself to some long term fiscal rules. Um, From memory, it was something like targeting a debt to GDP ratio of 40 percent or something like that. Um, as I say, I'm not sure that they make much sense as the government imposing this thing on on the uh, independent uh, managers. But 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 if you want to do it, you'll it'll look a bit like a, an inflation target. You'll say we you know through the cycle, this is the kind of thing we want you to aim for. Okay, so would you maintain the
0: medium-term fiscal? policy framework, I think we call it in Australia, where the idea is that you should aim for a balanced budget over the economic cycle, at least. Yeah,
1: I think that's fine so long as we don't kid ourselves. that, that That's actually offering more guidance than if we were honest with ourselves we should um, because we don't know what the next 10 years is going to look like and we don't know if there's a war going to be on. Um, but, But as a general starting point. That's a good starting point. We're not doing this to set up some fiscal free for all. Uh, but we but but but, uh, you know, all these rules, we, we don't know the answer to these things. And it isn't at all clear that the political layer should answer it. Um, it doesn't in banking. Uh, Well, you can say that it does in the sense of, you can say that it does in the sense of an inflation target, but then maybe we've got an inflation target just because we can by, uh, if you compare that with financial stability, which is another objective of the central bank, we don't tell them what financial stability is. We have to, they have to make those judgments. And so I'd say something pretty similar about fiscal policy.
0: Okay, I guess where I would, I, I'm not necessarily negative about your idea. I think it's a it's a very interesting idea and offers a lot of potential. I just my view is that the having independent monetary policy is much more straightforward because, well, we know that there's a clear link in the long term between the growth of the money supply which money monetary policy can influence and the price level so there's a the the idea that there's this close relationship ultimately between monetary policy and inflation so the the central bank can actually influence that and also that there's it's not as political as fiscal policy and we don't have to worry about this build up of national debt and the you know the burden of the debt through interest payments particularly if you have to pay interest uh, payments to foreign bondholders so that's why i've been thinking that okay i think this is a this is potentially a great idea there're just it's just going to be a lot more challenging than than fiscal than uh, monetary policy and therefore you need to think carefully about what that mandate is and also how you constitute the the body and the mm. rules around that so what yep. thinking have you done around what that advise is it an advisory body does it have ultimate authority over the budget deficit uh, how does it all work
1: okay so lots of questions there let okay. me firstly Take you on on this idea that monetary policy is somehow inherently less political than fiscal policy. And remember, I'm just talking about the fiscal stance. I'm not talking about the you know whether we put a surcharge on the rich or or go to a universal basic income or any of that, or spend a ridiculous amount of money on submarines that make too much noise and will be blown out of the water in the first five minutes of a of a uh, of of an exchange. Um, So let's have a look at that monetary, this proposition that monetary policy and what we ask central banks to do is less political than uh, the fiscal stance. I actually think it's the reverse. So if you look at precisely what's happening now, the uh, monetary authorities are trying to get the economy uh, are trying to support the economy and they're pushed into buying assets from asset holders who are, you know, you'll know the figures better than me, possibly, Gene, but they're, uh, let's say, the top 1%, let alone the top 0.1%, are pretty well represented among the people whose asset prices are being supported. So the distributional impact of the choices that are being made seems to me in this situation. To be, in fact, far more extreme than, than than simply saying. And I'm not sure that we've been, we've made it clear to the listener what I'm suggesting, which is in fiscal policy, which is that this independent that, that there be an additional instrument in fiscal policy, which is across the board tax rises or tax reductions. So when the economy is overheating, the way I see this working is that the fiscal board would say to the government, we think you need to tighten fiscal policy. And it's, and the, if the, if the, the government is, is entitled to do it the way it wants to do it, and if that's inadequate, the board then says, we're gonna increase um, company and income tax uh, by one percentage point. Uh, I wouldn't do with GST and value added tax because I think it's just too expensive in terms of what economists call menu costs—just lots of shops running around having to change all their accounting. But you can you can argue about that at the margins. Um, now that is a quite—you know—there's no huge uh, distributional impact of that, uh, whereas there is when you take monetary policy you know, when you're pushing on a string with monetary policy and you're putting way too much effort on monetary policy. Um, so that's the point, of, uh, th- that's the point about um, which is more political. Um, and again, you made the point about debt. So firstly, the fiscal debt is a domestic debt. But it can, of course, drive foreign debt, and that's a serious matter. But look at the situation that we've got ourselves in with quantitative easing. We've got the balance sheet of the central banks has gone through the roof. F- asset prices are through the roof. House prices are through the roof. Interest rates are at rock bottom. Now, I don't. there are not many people who've made out a very compelling story about how we get out of this. Because the moment there's, you know, we just tickle interest rates up, house price people will panic with house prices and so on. So um, I think a more sophisticated view of an economy is not uh, certainly a developed economy like Australia's and all the ones we've been talking about is not that foreign debt is some hard constraint and therefore has to be treated separate, uh, separately. In a, in, a, in a functioning, developed international economy, you need to avoid major disruption. And foreign debt can do it. Government debt can do it, uh, although it's not a hard constraint, uh, but it can still do it. And household debt and corporate debt can do it. And uh, so I don't think we get this get out of jail free card with monetary policy. I think we end up in a in, in arguable, well, certainly. If you're having to overuse an instrument, we actually end up in a worse position, not a better one. Okay, so how, yeah, how did, how did I go in persuading you? Oh,
0: no, I'm still, I've, I've got an open mind about this yeah, for no, sure. I, I just, just think that, that I just think our politicians will be very reluctant to to give no, up That's their, a different matter. Yeah, that's that, a different matter. The, we the, can
1: the, talk about that as a separate question. Yeah, uh,
0: I, I guess uh, I think they'll they'll be very reluctant to to give it up, and also. I mean the very nature of our representative democracy it was it was developed to control the spending of the king I think wasn't it back in yeah. uh, in yeah. well this was the I think one of the origin one of the reasons we had the English civil war yep and after all the the UK prime minister is the first lord of the treasury because it's the the treasury that's the most important Department in uh, in a government, it's the one that looks after the money. Uh, so, yeah, I'm just wondering about that. And like, there are all these judgments that have to be made. That that's why, yeah, you, uh, in my view, you have to be very specific or very careful in developing that mandate because whenever you you're whenever you're taxing and spending, even if you're just looking at the aggregates, that does have implications for future generations, really, uh, particularly if you do, yeah, if it does lead to that too much debt, if your debt to GDP ratio gets too high, the interest burden in the budget is too high. So that, that's all, that, that's
1: my yeah, main those concern. Things, yeah. So all of those things apply to monetary policy uh, in different ways. And I'm arguing that they apply more, certainly when in extremis, where you've been pushed into using monetary policy because of inadequate uh, use of fiscal policy. Um, As for your point about future generations, what we typically do in, uh, you know, Western political theory and Western political practice is if future generations are involved, we don't, we are wary of the judgments made by politicians who only have to get the votes of the living. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so Edmund Burke, who said that society was a a pact between the the dead, the living, and the not yet born, would be uh, w- would argue for the building of institutions in a sense to represent the not yet born, and that is really what we've done with courts and with monetary policy and so on we have actually said that where that is the case where where the where intergenerational fairness is important there is a case for trying to develop independent institutions rather than institutions that simply compete for the votes of the living
0: great that's a that's a great quote from uh, burke i'll have to Link to that in the show notes. Good,
1: uh, good. I think I, I may not have got it exactly right, but that's. But if you liked it, it was. Oh, roughly it sounds
0: right. like Burke. Yes, yep. yes. Uh, okay, uh, just to wrap up with, uh, there was that point you said we should come. We should talk about later about uh, the why politicians that yeah you know, politicians may not they probably wouldn't choose this, but it sounds like you wanted to react to that that politicians may re, they wouldn't actually agree to this. You oh.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did want to react to that. I mean, I wanted to say that that's exactly right. I'm not I'm not a fool. Um, I'm uh, that is what you expect. And therefore, if you have the sort of um, idea about the relationship between ideas and political practice that both Friedrich Hayek and John Maynard Keynes from opposite ends of the ideological spectrum thought, it is the job of. People trying to think things through and then educated elites to say, yes, these things that we think are now politically impossible. We all really agree or a lot of us really agree that they we have to bite the bullet and we have to do this. And the examples I can give you are in Australia, tariff reform, which Max Corden, famous Australian economist, wrote in 1968 in an academic paper, tariff policy is only of academic interest because politicians will never lower tariffs in Australia. Five years later, just five years later, there was the 25 percent tariff cut. 15 years later, it was all over. That was because as much as we complain about them, politicians try to do Herculean things, heroic things, if everybody keeps badgering them and people are of one voice. The same thing is true of indirect tax uh, reform in Australia. Um, you know, John Howard, uh, that first term of his was certainly one marked by political courage, gun control and taking on indirect tax reform. It was very close to suicidal. He got away with it and we got some big reform out of it. So we wouldn't have got that if we, as we so often do, say, oh, well, look, uh, let's think of something else to talk about because we can't get politicians to do that. You won't instantly be able to get politicians to do that. But after, but, but if you can persuade people and people start realising their power in a democracy and the power of elites in a democracy, it's amazing what you can do. And what I've suggested being done is certainly difficult for a politician. But if I was a politician, I'd much rather do that than tariff reform or tax reform. Much rather. Like by about five times rather. Uh, The other example is climate change and carbon pricing, which in Australia we had about 15 years of skirmishing, finally got there. Uh, It got there for the same kind of process. Now it got unpicked, which just shows that these things are always fragile. But um you know that we didn't start pricing carbon because a few government reports came out and people said hey why don't we price carbon politics is hard work absolutely
0: okay so just to make sure i understand what you're advocating for it's for an advisory board it's not it doesn't necessarily have the final decision but it provides advice to the government probably that advice is best in, made in the public domain? That-
1: Absolutely. Well, it's already got a private advisory, so which is called the Treasury. So yes. no. It, so so so. Essentially, my proposition to you and the listeners, Gene, is that independent that fiscal policy should be more independent and should look like more like monetary policy. And then you've got a why, And then I've suggested a mechanism to do that, which I think is very fair, as fair and as principled in terms of the principles of modern government, modern democratic government. Uh, That's all done. My word there is more. It should be more independent. And that defines a space from having a public advisory body all the way through to having the advisory body simply set, uh, simply have the power to move, to move, uh, to, to institute across the board tax increases or reductions. And there's a halfway house. And the halfway house is that this power exists. The government can use it. The government is advised publicly by the uh, this body. That's the but uh, but but it does it itself. That's one version of it. Another version of it is uh, that the body does it, but it can be overruled publicly by the government. Now I think this will surprise a lot of listeners but under, I think it's section 11 of the Reserve Bank Act in Australia, that is the level of independence that the Reserve Bank has. It it sets interest rates and it can be overruled by the government of the day by tabling the relevant instrument in parliament. It's never happened, which which shows you, uh, I love the idea of institutions that work not according to the letter of the law, but according to the spirit of the law. A bit like getting gender diversity without quotas, uh, and so it's that's I think historically worked very well in Australia. I'm not an extremist about independence either of central banks hmm. or of fiscal policy. My proposition is we need more independence in fiscal policy than we have at the moment. And okay. That was to to reduce the extent to which it's a a political uh, and if I going back to my earlier comments. A psychodynamic plaything of politicians. Absolutely, okay, Nicholas Gruen from Lateral Economics,
0: CEO of Lateral Economics, and King uh, visiting professor at King's College, London. Uh, if I got that right. Uh, yep. Thanks. Thanks so much. That was uh, that was fascinating. Uh, and uh, your eight hundred word opinion piece, or however many words it was, uh, it certainly raises a lot of questions and yeah makes. Uh, it's made me think a lot about fiscal policy and how whether that advice can can be better. I'm sure it, it obviously can be made much better and uh, and less political and more with a view to the long term welfare of uh, the population. So uh, yes, uh, well done on getting that published in the Financial Times, and thank you for appearing on the program.
1: Thanks very much, Gene.
0: Thanks for listening to the Economics Explored podcast. If you're enjoying it, please tell your family and friends and please give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or on whatever platform you're listening on. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or to ask any questions, please email me at gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week,
1: goodbye.